And we thank you that that blood is still being applied. And Lord, I pray that as we learn from your word now, that God, we would be encouraged from the pages of scripture this morning. I know I have been. And I pray that I'd be able to articulate that to our people. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. I want to welcome you. Thank you for, thank you for being here. And I also want to put a plug in for that men's Bible study. Uh, Ed has been such a blessing to me uh, just over these um, years that I've known him now. Uh, and uh, he, he wants to encourage you men as well. And I would, uh, if you can make it out to that, I, I promise you it will be a um, tremendous, tremendous blessing. And uh, this past la- last Bible study, we were, uh, we fellowship for a while. We just kind of eat, get to know each other. And we started talking about some like theological stuff on, is it possible if Judas Iscariot, you know, could be saved? Like, you know, like deep, deep, deep things. And I, it just so intrigued me that I've been studying the life of Judas uh, the last couple weeks. And, uh, and so uh, I'm looking forward to actually bringing some of what I've been learning uh, to you uh, in the weeks to come. And so I'm just uh, excited about uh, what the Lord is doing through our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we have started a mini-series within the bigger sermon of Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Uh, and we have entitled that Kingdom Prayer. Kingdom Prayer. And uh, this a uh, couple weeks ago, we had uh, JV preach last week, did a wonderful job on how we have a God of second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh chances. Uh, and I'm thankful for that when he uh, was just so gracious uh, towards uh, Simon Peter after denying him. And I love one of the points that JV brought out last week was the commission didn't change. So he was supposed to, uh, you know, to, to be out there reaching and, and ministering. And then he, of course, denies Christ. And then later, he's still commissioned with the same thing. Feed my sheep. Take care of uh, those and um, continue to be a fisher of men. And so I'm thankful for uh, that, that message and how God worked in my heart. Uh, for that, Matthew chapter number six, we are going to um, continue this. And I've entitled this morning's message, The Privilege of Christian prayer. And I think you're going to see before this morning's done why I entitled it there, the privilege of this Christian prayer. Can I read this this model prayer for you again? Remember a couple weeks ago when we started this, that uh, this isn't so much supposed to be just rote uh, what we just say all the time. And I gave you several reasons for that. I won't take your time this morning to review that. If you're wondering why I say that, and this isn't just something that we should always pull out and say every night before we go to bed, go to our YouTube channel, We Are Redwood, and you can listen to that entire message. But verse number nine of Matthew chapter number six, after this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. A few weeks ago, I tried to give you some of the background of how the Jews would have viewed prayer in the Old Testament. And it's very important for us to always think about the audience in which Jesus is teaching and preaching this sermon uh, some 2,000 years ago. We've got to understand. And so if you'll allow me to, I'd like to continue to just 
flesh out the, the mindset of, uh, of the Jew hearing by giving you some of the historical context uh, here in this kind of first portion of the, of the model prayer. In studying some of the prayers of the Old Testament, which I've been doing the last couple weeks, uh, I, I got a feeling for how the Jews, Jewish people, how they approached prayer. And I was amazed to find that even in the deepest, most delicate circumstances, some of them were extremely severe, the believer started with worship before the request. For example, I was reading the great prayer of Jonah. He was in the belly of a whale. It was an unbelievable circumstance that no one here would fully be able to comprehend what it was like at all and be able to relate to it. I mean, talk about fear. Talk about, talk about misery. Uh, God, in a sense, like even miraculously, still allowing him to remain alive there in the, in the belly of that whale. But in chapter number two of Jonah, prayer and and you would think that he would kind of cut through some of the stuff that maybe we would say and just say hey God would you get me out of here but that's not what Jonah does in the dire circumstance of being in the belly of a whale Jonah begins with the marvelous anthem of worship and praise because no man can really ask God for something hear me unless he affirms that God has the sovereign right to say yes or no. That is the basis. Our will needs to bend and be brought to submission to God's will. How often do we want God bent to our requests, bent to our will, our plan, our desires, our, you know, just calendar that we've so beautifully laid out. We don't, we don't like the interruptions. Instead, God, this is what I want my Monday to look like, and so on and so forth. And then in Daniel chapter 9, uh, Daniel is on the kind of the precipice of disaster because of the strategic place that God has, has him standing. He's right in the midst of pagan Babylonian society. And in this perplexity that was gripping him at the time that he bowed to pray and in the midst of a terrible situation, he utters this amazing prayer, a prayer that, that opens up almost ignoring the situation and affirming the majesty and the glory and the holiness in the almighty character of a sovereign God. You can read a similar prayer in Jeremiah chapter number 32, a great example of, again, worship before getting to the point. Often we think of the point being our request, but I'm challenging us in this series that it's beyond that. The point is actually you bending your will in submission to the will of God. Now, why start prayer that way? Because God is the focus of all prayer. Prayer give God the privilege of displaying his majesty. It is to bring my life and way into harmony with his will and his way for my life. May I illustrate that for you this morning in Psalm 86? 
See, the psalmist in Psalm 86, these verses will be up on the screen, but if you want to turn there, you can as well. He's about to, he's about to offer a prayer. He's going, to, he's going to pray to God, and he's seeking, he's ultimately going to see God's mercy, his love, and his compassion on his behalf. But beginning in verse number six, we read, Give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer, and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. Now the psalmist is in the midst of trouble. This is a prayer of David. His heart is burdened. There's this tremendous anxiety in his spirit. But listen to how he addresses God. Verse 8, among the gods there, are, there is none like unto you, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works. He doesn't begin with the petition. He doesn't begin with the request from God. He begins with the, the affirmation of the majesty and the almighty character of who God is. He acknowledges God for what he is and who he is and what he has done. Verse 9, all nations you have made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name, for you are great and doest wondrous things. Thou art God alone. He says the whole world should literally be bowing to the Lord. What a great, great way to start. This is the typical prayer of the Old Testament saint who knew what prayer was all about. Prayer was all about setting God in his rightful place and then bringing my will in the submission of that place. It's exactly what the psalmist does here. Verse number 11, as we continue, Teach me thy ways, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Let's pause there for a moment. Do you notice that he hasn't made a request yet? What is bringing him to prayer? The burden that later he's going to be, begin to ask about. He hasn't even started yet. He doesn't even bring it up. He says, first of all, I want to acknowledge that you are God and that you have a right to do what you want. And secondly, I want to acknowledge, submit to your will and to your way. And then this magnificent statement at the end of verse 11, unite my heart to fear thy name. Make my heart one with your heart. That is prayer. Prayer is bending, as I've been saying, and bowing submissively to the will of God. And I want us to ask ourselves before I go any further, to be honest, how often do we get that the other way around? How often are our prayers, our time alone with the Lord, trying to get him to see it our way? Let's just be transparent. It's often like that. We'll often play out the recording of our life. And we will say, God, look at this and look at this and look at this. You should be doing this. Or we'll do the opposite. We'll say, well, I'm not doing this and I'm not doing that. And I'm not, I'm not living the way that they're living. And often what we do is we bring God into the courtroom of our thinking. And we say, this is how you should act in my life. This is what you should bring to pass. 
And then in verse 12, it's amazing. The psalmist says, I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. I will glorify thy name forevermore. Setting God in his rightful place as sovereign and bringing our own lives submissively into his will. Now, with that in mind, some of these Old Testament type of saints praying, I want us to ponder again Matthew 6. And I'll be honest with you, as a pastor, I spend a lot of time with people in different arenas. We have the privilege of hosting uh, a couple ministries on the property here, two mainly that I um, have a lot of influence over and interactions with. And that would be a homeschool group that meets here weekly, and there's close to 90 kids on campus here every Friday with many, many, many parents. And then also we have AHG, which is American Heritage Girls, and that's like the Christian version of Boy Scouts. And so I tell you about these two fruitful, amazing ministries because they're diverse in the kind of community that I get to kind of uh, just rub shoulders with, just numerous backgrounds, cultures, nations, and even, and, and even religions. So we require the leaders that oversee these ministries to sign a statement of faith and to believe exactly the way we would believe. However, we also use it evangelistically where we allow students to be on campus that wouldn't believe this. Hence, maybe parents would also. So I, I have this opportunity to kind of rub shoulders with all different types of kind of just backgrounds. And as I engage with them, I find that no matter what their religion is, no matter what they claim, whether they believe the, 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 the Christ of the Bible or they don't, I find that they all kind of say that we're all the children of God. And when I hear people use that universal kind of fatherhood of God, I, I immediately want to respond, well, yes and no. So there's, a, there's like a yes to that. And then there's also a big no. Everyone is indeed a child of God in the sense that we are creatures made in the image of God. We are God's offspring, as Paul declared on Mars Hill in Acts 17. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. However, not everyone is a child of God spiritually. Being born again by the Holy Spirit and adopted by God as Father throughout the, 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 the righteousness that gets added to our account, imputed is the biblical term for it, imputed to our account through the precious life of Jesus Christ. Although most people, even many professing Christians, believe that everyone is a child of God in a spiritual way, the Bible the word of God is undeniably clear that only those who have placed their faith in God's son, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, they are able to have the, 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 the standing of child of God and he's being our father. And so these that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, these and these alone are the ones that Paul includes when he says in Galatians 4, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
And so let me build on this a little bit for you. Before we even kind of get, get, get to the concepts here, let me just build this. Jesus, Paul is saying it's those that have trusted Christ, those that have, have the Spirit of God within them. John tells us in John 1, but as many as received him, to them gave he power, the right, is what that word means. Gave you the right to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And so when you're thinking about a spiritual side of being a child of God, you have to be given that right. It's not something that just comes with being born. Yes, we are, in a sense, the offspring of God because we are image bearers of him. We have been created by him. Read Genesis 1. There's not a, uh, the, when you start reading the scriptures, there's not this debate of how everyone got here. We've got to know the word of God. God created us. And so, in a sense, as Paul referred to at Mars Hill, we are God's offspring. But spiritual children comes through Salvation, believing on his name. Let's continue to flesh this out. Romans 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit. I don't know if you see that. The Spirit, referring to Spirit, bearing witness with our spirit, small s there, that we are the children of God. And if children, then we're heirs. We're heirs with God. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ, Paul teaches. And then in Romans 9, they which are the children of the flesh, they are not the children of God but the children of the promise, the promise of the Spirit, is counted an offspring. Let me explain that verse for you. You know what Paul's saying? Just because we're born in the flesh, we've all, we've all got bodies, that doesn't make us a child of God in the sense of spiritually. We're just offspring. But those that have trusted the promise, those that have the Holy Spirit, earlier in the book of Romans when it talks about the Spirit bearing witness that we are the child of God. We, those, are counted as offspring. Then Galatians 3.26 says, For in Christ Jesus ye are all sons of God through faith. So I wanted to give you the, the doctrinal standing of the position that I am about to teach and preach. And that is this, adopted into a family. We're adopted into a family. When Jesus, my friends, when he taught us to pray with the words, our Father, he was not employing universal language to be inclusive of all human beings. No, he wasn't. He was teaching us something profound about God and our relationship to him. That God is not merely a father, that he's not merely the father, it's that he is our Father. There's such key in that word, our Father. When God adopts, He adopts you into a family. And so when we pray, Our Father, we are reminded that we're not alone. 
We're reminded that, that, we're, that we're part of a family, and it's such a privilege. If you're feeling alone today, keep listening. Because in Christ, you're not alone. You're part of this incredible, awesome family. But the religious world, at the time, did not understand this truth. For most of the world, the gods or the God that they worshipped was a very distant, remote, and fearful being. Sadly, that was, there was even an amazing remoteness even in the Jewish thinking of Jesus' day. The Old Testament Jew, or maybe what we can call as the, the, the old, the, the saint of God in the Old Testament, understood something of the fatherhood of God. There's no question about it. They understood that God was the father. Now, I think they understood it more in a national sense than they did in a personal sense. And so allow me to kind of just build this out for you a little bit. I think they understood it. In, in terms of God's overall care of the nation of Israel, absolutely, he's going to be there, and, 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 we, and we understand him, and they understand, but they didn't understand the intimacy of the relationship with God as a personal father. I don't think they began to fully understand that until Jesus came, until they began to really understand what this intimacy, in a sense, I, I mean that just this closeness, this relationalness with God. And I think that's illustrated graphically um, in, the, um, in the teaching with, with Philip and Jesus. Philip's like, when are you going to show us the Father? And Jesus' response is, if you would just have understood that any time you've been with me, you've already seen the Father. And so they didn't, they didn't understand this entire concept that I think we in 2023 may understand. I hope we do. I hope we begin to, to use it as such a privilege after this morning. But, but they didn't fully understand it. I think it was Jesus that brought us this, the closeness of that. But in the Old Testament, they did understand God as a father, but in a national sense, not a personal sense. As time went on, and you come to the time of Jesus, they lost the father concept of God altogether. God became more and more remote. As they moved away from kind of true religion, and they moved away from true worship, they kind of redefined their system, and their system was all about separating from sin, and we know that God does command his people to be holy and to be separated from sin, but they, they kind of created this this kind of system that kind of just separated themselves completely off. And so they would allow other things into their life, other sinful things that they didn't deem as maybe sinful as what was in the law. And so obviously they were cutting themselves off from God's fatherly care. Therefore, they assumed that God was remote. And they even stopped using God's names. It became a blasphemous thing to even mention the name of God. They had lost the sense of God's fatherhood, even in a national way that they had known in the past. And so, hear me, when our amazing Lord utters the term, our Father, it was a shocking thing to them. 
It awakens to them something lost long, long, long time ago. It introduces a new kind of closeness that those that would have been listening on that day had no understanding of. It's a new new closeness, a new intimacy in, in, in the right way with the God of heaven. So again, Jesus was teaching us something profound about our God and our relationship with him. It wasn't merely that he is a father and he's the father. He's our father. And when God adopts, he adopts us into a family. God created all of you. God created all of mankind as human beings for community. But by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, we are then recreated. We are renewed for a community in a different type of family. So we, we kind of, we, we leave the, just the family out there of everyone being his offspring and you get renewed or you get reborn into a different family. You get adopted into this spirit-led, this amazing uh, family. And it's, God calls us to be people to gather together face-to-face to worship him. And that's what we, of course, do on a weekly basis. When we come together in gathered worship every Sunday, we're reminded that we're not alone. We're reminded that we are a vital part of a living body, a covenant community of believers. You were not meant to do life on your own. So can I challenge you to stop doing life on your own? Can I challenge you to let other brothers and sisters, have you ever wondered why, like sometimes in churches they might say like, you know, Brother Dalton, you know, he's one of our leaders at the church here. We've kind of gone away from some of that, but there's a reason why they've done it in the past. Brother and sister, it's because you get adopted into a family. We're not brothers by blood per se, but we're brothers by a different kind of blood, Jesus's blood. And so don't do life alone. There's a privilege in this body, a privilege in, of course, the, the, the larger body of, of Christendom to do life with brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why we kind of add that caveat, in Christ. That's what, the, the, that's what we're talking about here. The only begotten Son of God. They hear about this. The only begotten Son of God invites you to call his father your father. That's amazing. So I'm getting way ahead of myself here, but I, it's Sunday, right? I didn't get to preach last week. And so, like, and we don't use it. We go hours sometimes without ever praying. Days. Maybe weeks. And yet a privilege that we have is that the only begotten son of God says you can call his father your father. Blew the minds of those that were listening that day. What? Because they had so removed this fatherly figure from their way of thinking and living. For many Jews in that first century, this was arrogance. Now, they didn't believe that Jesus actually was the Son of God, many. But they believed that this whole concept, that we can call God the God of heaven, the Yahweh of heaven, that we can call him our Father, 
It's extraordinary that Jesus called God his Father and it applied that he is the Son of the Father. They had a hard time believing that. John 1 verse 14 says, and the Word was made flesh. Verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. So the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 8 verse 19 says, then said they unto him, where is thy Father? Excuse me, Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you should have known my father also. They didn't believe that Jesus was one with the father. They didn't believe that he was the son of God. John 14, 7, if you had known me, you should have known my father also. Some scholars have argued that for Jesus to teach his followers to call God our father, would have been regarded by Jewish rabbis of the day as presumptuously conceited at best or blasphemous at worst. So consequently, when Jesus rebuked certain Jews who rejected him, he made it abundantly clear not only that God was not their father, but that they were the father of the devil. And you can read about that in John 8 beginning in verse number 39. Mike, I'm going to jump over those verses, okay? But you, you can read about it. And John, Jesus ultimately says, listen, the reason why you can't call the Father and you don't believe on the Son of God is because you are actually a son of, your father is a father, the devil. They didn't understand how God was not their father because they didn't believe that Jesus actually came from the Father. So in this natural state before God, they could not believe that Jesus is the long-awaited seed of the woman, the long-expected Son of God, right when sin entered into the world in the garden there. In Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15, we read, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The first mention of the gospel that the seed of the woman, there's no such thing as a seed of a woman. That comes from the man. Hence, Jesus had to have been virgin born. You have the virgin birth even mentioned in the first, in the first three, couple chapters of the word of God. And so the Holy Spirit of God in a miracle brought about Jesus' birth. And so but it was prophesied that he was going to crush the head of Satan. And then in Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. Jesus, the Mighty God, the Everlasting, you see it? Father, the Prince of Peace. So we must remember that we were enemies until God made you a friend. You were enemies until God said, in my son, Jesus Christ, you accept him, you get adopted into the greatest family in all the world. It's an awesome family. Our father. So our adoption means that secondly, we are welcomed and blessed. That's what it means. You're welcomed. So let's go. Let's get in the car and let's go. You're welcomed into the presence of God. Our Father, you're welcomed and you're blessed. God is our Father only by virtue of our being united to Jesus Christ. 
the Son by faith. Through his resurrection, our, let me, hey, hear me, our brother Jesus, remember we're joint heirs, our brother Jesus demonstrated that he is the first fruits of our resurrection, that he is the firstborn among many brethren, and that united to him, we become heirs with him. It's fitting then that our Father has given to us all things that are pertaining to life and godliness. We are so blessed in this family. We're so welcomed into it. Let me read you how blessed you are. 2 Peter 1, verse 3, according to his divine power, he, referring to God, has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that had called us to glory and virtue whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But I like what it says there at the beginning, that we have been given everything for life and godliness. It's just incredible what we've been given. Our Father is a gracious and generous Father. He cares for you, and He cares for me. not always like our earthly fathers. Sometimes we're blessed. I was blessed with an awesome earthly father. Wish my parents were here this weekend so I could say that in front of them. But not all of us have that story. And yet, your heavenly father is blessing you. He welcomes you into his presence. Too often we pursue, presume what our Father will not do for us or not give us, and thus we never ask. We treat ourselves like orphans, although God has made us sons and daughters. For when God adopts us into his family, he doesn't just, we're not just called adopted, you're called children. You're his son. You're his daughters. Amazing. Do you remember the story of Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth and King David, they were kind of, should have been arch enemies. Mephibosheth was crippled and had enmity with his king. Listen to me, we're not only crippled. <laughs> we're not only at enmity, listen, we are dead in our sins, which is complete enmity with the king, at complete enmity with his kingdom. However, as David welcomed and blessed Mephibosheth, God has welcomed us and he has blessed us. He has brought us in. He has made us able to be able to lie down and to feast and to have our feet washed. Listen, you have been blessed in your father. Let me give you one last quick point. Mike, I'm skipping a whole bunch of stuff. This name is hallowed in heaven. Jesus also taught us that God is our father who's in heaven, reminding us that our father is perfect in his glory. He's not far away, but he is near. I can't wait to show that to you in a moment. He's present. He's always ready to listen. He's always ready to commune with you, always. Psalm 145 says the Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him. 
to all that call upon him in truth. He's right there. He's ready to listen to you. Jeremiah 23, I am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God far away. He's right there. Acts 17, for in him we live and move and have our beings, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Draw nigh to God, James says, and he will draw nigh to you. We're not to regard him as someone sort of kind of distant authority figure who doesn't really listen, who doesn't really care that he's never around. No, you're supposed to regard him as someone that's always there, ready to hear you, ready to listen to you. When Jesus taught us to call on God as our father, he also taught us to call on our father whose name is hallowed. I'm going to mention much more of that next week. But this self-declosed covenantal name of God is the name Yahweh. He gave it to Moses in Exodus 3.14. And I said unto Moses, I am that I am, he said. Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent you. Recognizing the name of God is hallowed or praying to him as one whose name is hallowed, does not make his name hallowed. He does actually not need you to recognize him as having a hallowed name. God's name is hallowed. And we ought to just come to that conclusion. This is who he is. His name is set apart. His name is sanctified by no greater authority or power that God has than his name. Hebrews 6.13 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by nothing greater... He swear by himself. His name is holy because he is holy. His name is not like our names. His name is not simply what we call him, and his name does not just describe him. His name is who he is, Yahweh. Thus, when we confess that his name is hallowed, we're not asking for him to become something that he is not. We are acknowledging who he is. We are affirming the reverence that is due unto him. That's why, my friend, we don't come to God and tell him to do what we want him to do. My life's miserable, Ryan. Are we telling God what we want him to do? Or we come to God realizing that you get to. I'm part of a family. And God is loving and he's compassionate and he's caring. And that we get to come into this family, our Father. Which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It starts with reverence. It starts with relationship and reverence. And God, would you... Would you bend my will? Would you bend my thinking to your will and to your thinking? What a privilege. What a privilege. So when we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we can rest assured that he is our Father and that once he has adopted us, he's never going to leave us nor forsake us. I can show you that in the Old Testament. I can show you that in the New Testament. You're part of the family. So let me ask you a question. 
Are you part of the family? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior? That is the ticket into the family. And if you haven't, it starts with accepting Jesus Christ, God's Son, and what he did on the cross to pay for your sin. And that brings the Holy Spirit, forgiveness, and adoption into an awesome family. Can I encourage you this week, when you say our Father in prayer, that you ponder what you're saying. Think about it. Wow. The God of heaven listens to my prayers. It's amazing. It's a privilege. So I'd encourage you, as I'm trying to encourage myself, I'm trying to even encourage my family this past week, that we see God for who he is. And then with that relationship side, we come to him in prayer. This is kingdom prayer. Nothing's happening in my prayer life. Is this how we're coming to him? I don't ever, I don't ever see any answered prayers, Ryan. Remember, Jesus isn't giving you the prayer that you're supposed to pray every time. He's saying, when you go, go in the right way. Bend to his will. Let's try it right now. Every head bowed, every eye closed.